0: Father God, please would you open our eyes now as we hear your words, as we reflect on ourselves and our own lives and our world today. Please help us to see clearly and to see what it means to live for Jesus in the light of what we read here, to trust in Him, to be honest about ourselves our world we pray in Jesus name amen so all this talk of sin and wrath and judgment that we've heard so far in Romans where is the love what about forgiveness does it all have to be so negative maybe you've begun to wonder that as we as we've heard and we've heard this repeated message over I think the last four weeks now as we've been looking at at, um, the early chapters of Romans there will be a day when God judges the world, and each human being stands naturally guilty, condemned. It doesn't matter who you are the most notorious dictator, or murderer, or worse, or the most upright religious lawkeeper you can find all are guilty before God. And it's not an easy message to hear, and it's not an easy message to speak about. And it's not unusual to hear the kind of objection which goes well, surely we should be a bit more positive about God. Isn't Isn't Christianity meant to be good news? It sounds like you want to scare people into God's kingdom rather than woo them. I wonder if you've heard that kind of objection, or maybe you might even feel it yourself. Well, to understand the answer to these questions, we need to get inside the logic of Paul's argument in these chapters, and particularly in this final part of the opening section of this this letter where he's majored on sin and... And judgments. one issue is that we like to keep things simple as Christians, and actually simplicity is really important isn 't it? I love simplicity, I enjoy expressing things as simply and clearly as I possibly can, but speaking generally, when we do that, and particularly when we think of of the Christian faith, the Christian message in those terms, we come up with useful ways. To help us with that, we come up with things like maybe the bridge diagram. I don't know if you've ever come across that, or two ways to live, or something like that. And we go, there's a problem, sin and judgment, and there's a solution. Jesus' death on the cross. We go, that's the gospel. There you go. Believe that, and you will be saved. And genuinely, that's great, and it's true. As far as it goes, it is absolutely right. But if that is as far as we ever go we may be left wondering, well, hang on a minute, why why, why a cross? Why, Why did Jesus die like that? Why couldn't God do it a different way? Why couldn't he just decide to forgive us? More than that, why one single point in history in one specific place? You know, if Jesus had lived and died and risen from the dead in another place at another time, would it really make any difference to our message and to what we believe? It's all slightly random. Why why should what happened in the Middle East in another era really have anything to do with London, here and now, let alone China or Madagascar or Brazil or the Solomon Islands or wherever you might think of? Paul is clear that the answer to that is that unless we understand how Jesus' life and death and resurrection fit into the story of the world, and in particular the story of his people Israel, And actually, we won't really understand this gospel message. And in effect, that is the question he comes to in verse 1 in chapter 3. So we've had chapters 1 and 2. We've established essentially Jews and Gentiles are in the same boat. So he comes to the beginning of chapter 3. He goes, okay, then, what advantage is there then in being a Jew? What is the point of Israel and being Jewish in the plan? And that's all the story of the Old Testament. What's the point of all that? Why did Jesus have to die, not just anywhere, but in Jerusalem? Why not any time, but at the climax of a particular period of that nation's history? So that's the question he's coming at in verse 1. It gets repeated, in effect, in verse 9. It's the same question. That is what holds this whole passage together as we try and understand it. But if you look, the answer that he then gives in verse 2, and then also verse 9, is completely different. In verse 2, what does he say? He says, what advantage is there? Much in every way. In verse 9, he says, are we any better? No, not at all. Which at face value is a bit confusing. But he's not contradicting himself, if we look more closely as we will. His answer is, well, God's people, the, the Israelites, they have every privilege. And actually, they have no privilege at all. Now, how can that be the case? Well, we're going to see. And how does it help us to figure out why he's still emphasizing this message of sin and judgment at this point. Well, let's dive in and see. We see, first of all, here from verses 1 to 4, God's faithfulness can't be stopped. God's faithfulness can't be stopped. He begins by saying... Um, from one angle, what advantage is there in being a Jew or being circumcised? Well, there is huge advantage. What is that? Have you look? It says they, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. They've got God's law. They've got the law of Moses. They have the Hebrew scriptures. They've got well over half our Bibles. They, they, they've been revealed to them, to us, he's saying. He's writing as a Jewish Christian. These scriptures were given to them and from the start in Genesis 12 as we have seen God favoring them as a nation was always in order to bless all nations. The first humans were made in God's image they rejected the role they were given to represent him as his image bearers in the world they preferred to try and replace him and be gods themselves and decide on what good and evil looked like. Abraham and his descendants were then called to be God's image bearers in the world in order to undo that first sin of adam and eve but now in chapter two what we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks we've seen actually the thing is the descendants of abraham have failed to represent god as his image bearers and instead they just simply repeated the sin of their own ancestors adam and eve now there have been some faithful israelites along the way a faithful remnant we see through the story of the old testament But they've been the exception. So does that mean God's plan has failed? This idea to to choose a people in order to bless the world, to to deal with the problem of sin that the Bible begins with. Has that plan failed? That's Paul's question in verse 3. Answer, verse 4, no. Let God be true and every human being a liar. In other words, God is still committed to this plan to redeem, to save the world. That he began in Genesis chapter 12. His faithfulness continues. He will find a faithful, righteous, perfect human image bearer to carry out his mission. But here is the shock. Those who are unfaithful are excluded. And that will lead in the second half of verse 4 in this quote from Psalm 51 to God being shown to be in the right as he judges. He'll be in the right if he keeps his promises. He'll be in the right if he judges evil. His righteousness is about both saving and judging. Now, what are the implications of this? Paul is nailing down the final corner of the escape hatch to stop anyone from wriggling out of the consequences of our sin. He's been doing this, he's been nailing down different objections since the beginning of chapter 2 to say, no, 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 you can't appeal to this, you can't appeal to that, you can't appeal to this. So beginning of chapter 2, you know, surely he doesn't mean good people like me, we heard. No, if you're honest, you're a lawbreaker too. Then second half of chapter 2, well surely he doesn't mean members of his people, whether Old Testament Jews or church members today. No, club membership itself is not enough. And now the question is more about God, well surely he's going to keep his promises. He made a promise to and through these Old Testament people. Well, yes, he is going to keep his promises, and nothing can stop him from doing that, but don't think that lets you personally off the hook. You know, God will forgive me, that's his job, said the 19th century German poet Heinrich Heine on his deathbed. No, says Paul, he can keep his promises and still judge you personally. Or somebody says, I'm, I'm part of the club, I go to church, I've been baptised, I'm in a small group, I go to engage, I'm a church leader. Well, good for you, but God is calling all people everywhere to account. And that includes you, and that includes me. One sure way to diagnose this kind of complacency that thinks this you know, is chiefly about other people and not me is to look for where there is disunity among God's people. Unity is a big theme in this book because it can only be achieved when people are humble enough to realize how little they deserve what they have in Christ. And where there is disunity, it will be because someone thinks they deserve more, someone thinks their voice should carry greater weight, someone thinks they've been hard done by. There can be no claim to any of these things if we really understand how little we deserve what we have. And how what lies ahead is a day of judgment for how we've treated God. Does that mean God won't keep his promises? No, his faithfulness can't be stopped. But unfaithful people will still face exclusion. That is verses 1 to 4. Which leads then in verses 5 to 8 to an objection. Which Paul deals with by saying, secondly, in verses 5 to 8, God's fairness can't be challenged God's fairness can't be challenged if ever we need to concentrate is when we look at these verses because this is um, quite uh, hard to understand at first looking at it verses five to eight there's a single objection here repeated twice verse five and then verse seven it's basically the same objection if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly is it really fair for God to judge us now what does he mean? He's saying if, if we're saying God's people are sinners and when even God's people sin it leads to God showing that he's good because he's displaying his saving and judging righteousness, is it really fair for God to judge us at all? It's a slightly subtle argument. We could put it like this, what's the job of the fire brigade? Well the job of the fire brigade is to put out fires. And so when they come and put out fires, it's brilliant, isn't it? You know, there they all are with their shiny red fire engines and uniforms, and people are saying, wow, you're so amazing. You're heroes. It's amazing how you put out that fire and you rescued that child from the top floor of that blazing building. Well, that being the case, someone might argue, look, well, can you really judge me for starting a fire? Because if I start a fire, then the fire brigade come and everyone cheers at how great they are for doing their job. So it's not really fair to blame me for starting a fire, is it? Well, can you see? It's kind of logic, but it's crazy logic. And today you hear the same kind of objection when somebody says something like this. Is it really fair for God to judge me when he's the one who made me and he made the world and I didn't choose to be a sinner, I was born like this, with this nature? It's not my fault, therefore. And more than that, if it's such good news that God is going to judge the world and end evil and we ought to be cheering for that is it really fair to call my sin evil at all? Because it's my sin that leads him to doing that judgment that everyone thinks is great. You see, it's a slightly twisted logic. But it's not that far off, all the various ways, that we try and say God is just not fair in the way that he does things. And I think if we're honest, we do say things like that. And we meet people who we're talking to who think that. Now, this is, as I said, this quite condensed argument, verses 5 to 8 particularly. And really, actually, Paul does this a bit in Romans. He has little trailers for what he's going to go into in more detail later. And he's going to come to, back to these questions uh, in chapters 9 to 11 in particular. So we need to kind of wait for that in, in some ways. But here, in his answer to this objection here is just briefly at the end of verse 6. He's saying, no, look, this is crazy, because if it were so, how could God judge the world at all? What does he mean? Well, you see, most people will agree that it's good. It's, you know, if there is a God, it is a good thing that he might judge the world. At least in part. Don't we? Isn't that right? You know, we, we want to hear that there will be justice against obvious evil that we see around us in the world. We need to know. That a serial abuser, whose crimes are only discovered after their death, maybe, will face a day of reckoning for their crimes. We, we, We want to know that, and much else besides. We need to know God is going to judge the world and put things right. But Paul is saying, well, you can't have it both ways. If it's right for God to judge the obvious evildoer... It has to be right for him to judge you too. See, the Bible is clear. Yes, God made us. Yes, we have inherited the sinful nature of our first parents and Adam and Eve, but our sin is still our own personal responsibility. It is entirely fair for God to judge us and hold us to account. We can't wriggle out of that by claiming we're doing him a favour by starting the fire so he can show off his firefighting. Do you see And then, if we're still in any doubt, that even a small amount of wriggling might be possible. We come finally to verses 9 to 20. God's justice can't be avoided. God's justice can't be avoided. And we come to this question that was in verse 1. We come to it again. Is there any advantage then to being a part of this Old Testament people who were given this job to do in God's world? That's who he means by we there. He's, he's Jewish as he writes this, Remember. And he says, well, actually, in this sense, none at all. Because if we think that the privilege that he highlighted in verse 2 is going to help us to duck the verdict of the Day of Judgment, we're wrong. We've already made the charge, he says, that Jew and Gentile alike are all under the power of sin. That was, that's what he was been doing since second half of chapter 1, making that clear. And now he spells it out again by appealing to the Old Testament scriptures themselves. Those words with which God's people have been entrusted condemn them. That's what he's showing them in these verses. And they're quotations from the Psalms and Isaiah, and they highlight first the utterly ruined nature of people's hearts. So look at this in verse 10, second half of verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one, we, and this is a quote from Psalm 14 that we heard before. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And it's similar language to where he started in that, at halfway through chapter 1, where he was talking about Gentiles, But now the shock you see is that he's bringing it back to show that this is true of everybody, Jew and Gentile, every human being, every heart by nature turns from God to serve ourselves. And we heard the source of this uh, quote in Psalm 14, the word worthless is the same as the word corrupt or depraved. And from these verses and others we get the concept of what is sometimes called total depravity. Now you might wonder what is meant by that. It's not that every human being is as bad as they could possibly be, but that every part of us is spoilt and broken and ruined by sin. Our minds, our hearts, our emotions, our intellects, our desires, our wills, our affections, all are broken by sin and this plays into that question that we started off with you see does it all have to be so negative you know is it even true to to say this about human beings you know because surely human beings sometimes are good and true and and noble and self-sacrificial and think of others and we don't always do the worst we could and we produce the most beautiful art and music and so on and the point is yes we God's image in us is not so broken that no image of his beauty and creativity and goodness in us remains, but it is broken and it is spoilt and our righteous deeds are as filthy rags, as Isaiah puts it. Our virtues are vices and that's because of what's going on in our hearts, even as we outwardly do good. Because we can do outward good for selfish reasons can't we we can serve others while serving ourselves isn't that isn't that true you know how much of social media for example has the outward appearance of serving others in various ways but the inward aim of making ourselves look good how much of our desire to to serve others to care for others in ways that the world would applaud and thank us for but how much of that is done at some level out of a desire to get praise or recognition or reward But surely, though, we might still say some sin is worse than others. You know, you're not, with this idea of total depravity that we we, we see from here, you're not saying every sinner is just as bad as the next one, are you? Well, in one sense it's true. Abuse or murder, for example, are worse than, you know, shouting at your sister or something. But at the beginning of chapter 2 we saw it is still appropriate to call out sin in others. But that doesn't stop us being guilty ourselves. And we need to know that, actually, don't we? We need to know that the fact that we are all guilty and the fact that we are all, that this total depravity is true of every single human being, that doesn't stop us from saying, no, that sin that we see over there is dreadful. So when we hear the tragic story of Sarah Everard in the news, and other stories of women feeling unsafe it's okay to say that is outrageous it shouldn't be happening and it's doubly outrageous if people in positions of trust are are involved in these crimes but we do that from a position of understanding that we face judgment as sinners too we may not be murderers but our hearts have turned away from god and we do not seek him And as further evidence of this, Paul then turns to tongues and speech, verses 13 and 14. Do you see that? Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. And we know this, don't we? We know that words alone can utterly ruin relationships. And again this week, think of Harry and Meghan, You know, you don't have to take sides between them and the royal family to understand words can be utterly destructive. And those words can then lead us, verses 15 to 18, to paths of war and not peace. Now, what does our culture say? Our culture says, just be yourself isn't that the sort of watchword of phrase that that people want to say just be yourself, the most important thing is to be yourself, now Paul is saying that is exactly the problem when we are ourselves this is where evil comes from and the upshot is that we arrive in the courtroom in verses 19 and 20 charged with sin facing a guilty verdict totally exposed and with no possible defense do you ever have those dreams those nightmares of being utterly humiliated in some way in front of others you know there's that traditional dream of discovering you're not wearing any clothes maybe we won't go any further on that but there's the dream of sitting down to do an exam you had that dream i was talking to my dad he's 71 50 years ago he was at university He still, 50 years later, has a recurring dream where uh, it's this nightmare of this feeling of dread as he thinks of huge piles of unread lecture notes and an exam paper that he's opened in front of him where he cannot answer a single question. And even preachers have nightmares of standing up and standing here and only then realising there has been no preparation There are no words to say, and you feel utterly exposed. Now, I'm sure we all have different versions of that kind of fear. But multiply that feeling a hundred times over, and we only have a small sense of how it will feel to be exposed before a holy God with no defence in the face of our sin. On that day, knowing God's word, having his law, won't help anyone, says Paul, verse 19. And if God's people will be convicted by their inability to keep the law, so certainly will the rest of the world. Every mouth then will be silenced and the whole world hold accountable to God. The works of the law, which means just doing what the law requires. That will not help us then, verse 20. For us, that means appealing to, you know, all the, the, the good things that we think we've done. I've been to church, I've ticked the religious boxes. Won't make any difference. All that God's law and his word will do then is serve to convict us and show up our guilt. You know, Oh, you know the Ten Commandments, do you? Oh, that's great. So, so you've always worshipped God and no one else, have you? You, you? You've not lived for the idols of wealth and prosperity and comfort and health and happiness. You, you've not misused God's name. You, you've remembered the Sabbath by trusting God enough to rest as well as work. You, you, you've honoured your father and mother in all circumstances, without exception. You, you've not murdered anyone, even in your heart, in anger. You've not committed adultery even in your heart in lust towards someone you're not married to. You've not stolen. You've not lied. You've not longed for something or someone that does not belong to you. Really? You can say that. Because that is what God's law requires, isn't it? And like a mirror, it's very effective at showing us what the problem is but it has no power to do anything about it. So he says, through the law, we become conscious of sin. And that means whoever we are, whatever our background, whatever our privilege, whatever our status in society, whatever our job, however other people think of us and speak of us, however much we volunteer and serve and seek to help others, there is only one possible verdict, guilty as charged. Well, where does that leave us then? The question that remains is this. How can God actually do both of these things that Paul talks about in these verses? How can he be both faithful to his promises and completely just in judgment? And that is the question that we're going to leave hanging to pick up next week as we come to verse 21. That's where the argument goes. But for now, for the Christian trusting Jesus today, it is true, this is our past and not our present. And we'll see how that can be next week and in the following weeks. But for now, as we sit inside this tight argument that Paul has made, what we need to do is we need to feel its force, which is to realise all possible escape hatches are nailed down securely. There is no way out of this mess that we find ourselves in, no way at all other than through Jesus. That is why he had to die. So what that means is if we find ourselves ever feeling a little bit apathetic about what Jesus has done, there's a good chance we simply haven't listened to what Paul is saying in chapters two and three see this is why he's majored on sin and judgment this is why sin and judgment need to be in the message the gospel message that we share just as they are in Paul's gospel message that he shares not because we just want to you know we enjoy making ourselves feel bad but because we know there's a savior and we want to see how great he is And to anyone who's yet to come to that saviour and trust him personally, God is imploring through his servant Paul by his Holy Spirit, there is no other way to be right with him. There is no other place we can hide when we face that judgment, that day when we stand before him to give account for the ways that we have lived our lives. As he brings to justice the rest of the world and the evil that we deplore today and we cry out in outrage about and he puts all that right but we too will stand before him and on that day there will be no other place to hide if we think that we can get out of this by ourselves so God is imploring us come to Jesus let's pray now Father, we we praise you that you are faithful, that what you say is true, that we can believe you and trust you. And you have promised that there will be a day when you judge the world. You have promised to put things right in this world that you have made that. Has turned its back on you. And we feel the weight of our own personal rejection and rebellion against you. And that verdict of guilty. And so we want to throw ourselves not on our own deeds, our own things that we might be able to do or think we can do, but we want to throw ourselves on Jesus, knowing that he has died and risen, knowing that he did that for us, knowing that in him, There is a fresh start and a new life. And so we cling to him, we come to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.